This is episode 125 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Stephen King's The Stand and Another Literary Virus. This episode is part of our Near Daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about Stephen King's novel, The Stand, which is about another uh, literary virus, and it's uh, described as a post-apocalyptic dark fantasy novel. It came out in 1978. It's drawn so many comparisons to the coronavirus that Stephen King himself took to Twitter and tweeted, no, coronavirus is not like The Stand. It's not anywhere near as serious. It's eminently survivable. Keep calm and take all reasonable precautions. And the plot centers on a pandemic of a weaponized strain of influenza that kills almost the entire world population. And there are few survivors which gather together in Boulder, Colorado, of all places, and then Fight Evil, which is a group of people who have gathered together in, of course, you guessed it, Las Vegas. And they established a new social system, and uh, I won't give away the end of the book, although there probably are some spoilers in here. In writing the book, King said he was trying to create an epic in the spirit of the Lord of the Rings, but set in contemporary America. And he wrote, I just couldn't figure out how to do it. After my wife and kids and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, I saw a 60-minute segment on chemical biological warfare. I never will forget the gruesome footage of the test mice shuddering, convulsing, and dying, all in 20 seconds or less. It got me remembering a chemical spill in Utah that killed a bunch of sheep. And I guess there were some canisters that fell off a truck and ruptured. I remembered a newspaper reporter saying if the winds had been blowing the other way, that was toward Salt Lake City. He said, I was deep into the stand, finally writing my American fantasy epic set in a plague-decimated USA, only instead of a hobbit, My hero was a Texan named Stu Redman, and instead of a dark lord, my villain was a ruthless drifter and supernatural madman named Randall Flagg. The title of the novel comes from the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's sweeping uh, Born to Run uh, song, Jungle Land, uh, in which the lyric is, Tonight all is silence in the world as we take our stand down in jungle land. Stephen King had actually first dreamed up the idea of a super flu, which he called, as he does in The Stand, Captain Trips, in a 1969 science fiction short story that he published in the University of Maine's Literary Journal. And in that iteration, the virus uh, originated in Southeast Asia. He also talks about writing The Stand in his novel, Danse Macabre. 
He said its writing came during a troubled period for the world in general, and America in particular. We were suffering from our first gas pains in history. We had just witnessed the sorry end of the Nixon administration and the first presidential resignation in history. We had been resoundingly defeated in Southeast Asia, and we were grappling with a host of domestic problems from the troubling question of abortion on demand to an inflation rate that was beginning to spiral upward in a positively scary way. The America I had grown up in seemed to be crumbling beneath my feet. The stand came out of kind of a rocky period of writing for Stephen He had first been writing a novel about the Patty Hearst kidnapping, uh, but he was having trouble getting that novel to come together. He said that he thought a novel might, might be the only way to make sense of what had happened, and that is a crazy rabbit hole to go down if you uh, uh, don't remember her kidnapping. So she was a, an author and actress and granddaughter of the American publishing magnate William Run- Randolph Hearst, And she was kidnapped in 1974 by the Sibonese Liberation Army, and she was found 19 months afterwards, by which time she had actually joined the organization and committed serious crimes with them. Uh, and at her trial, the prosecution said that she had joined the SLA of her own volition, but she testified that she'd been brainwashed and threatened with death. She was eventually convicted for the crime of bank robbery, and sentenced to 35 years in prison, which was later reduced to seven years, and then her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter, and she was pardoned by President Bill Clinton. Crazy little nugget of a story there. Uh, so anyway, I think that story is so insane, it would probably take an enormous novel to explain it. King actually cited Donald DeFreeze, who was the primary kidnapper of Patty Hearst, as his inspiration for a Randall Flagg, the super bad guy in The Stand. Stephen was describing how he came up with that character again in Danse Macabre. I sat there for another 15 minutes or so, listening to the eagles on my little cassette player, and then I wrote, Donald DeFreeze is a dark man. I did not mean that DeFreeze was black. It had suddenly occurred to me that in the photos taken during the bank robbery in which Patty Hearst had participated, you could barely see DeFreeze's face. He was wearing a big badass hat, and what he looked like was mostly guesswork. I wrote, a dark man with no face, and then glanced up and saw that grisly little motto again, once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. And that was that. I spent the next two years writing an apparently endless book called The Stand. So Randall Flagg makes his first named appearance in The Stand. So he tries to make a new civilization after the plague had killed everybody. He's described as a tall man of no age, and he dresses in old blue jeans, a denim jacket, and a cowboy hat. He wears a, a backpack, and his jacket pockets are stuffed with pamphlets from various fringe splinter groups. His background is vague. He says at some point he just sort of became, that he might have had a hand in the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, um, but that otherwise he remembers being a Marine, a Klansman, a Viet Cong member, a very creepy character. In Las Vegas, he attracts people drawn to destruction, power, and tyranny using crucifixion, torture, and other punishments. 
and he planned to attack and destroy the Good Guys organization, uh, Mother Abigail's Free Zone in Boulder, in order to become the dominant society. And here's uh, an excerpt from The Stand describing him. There was a dark hilarity in his face, and perhaps in his heart too, you would think, and you would be right. It was the face of a hatefully happy man, a face that radiated a horrible, handsome warmth, a face to make water glasses shatter in the hands of tired truck stop waitresses, to make small children crash their trikes into board fences and then run wailing to their mommies with stake-shaped splinters sticking out of their knees. It was a face guaranteed to make barroom arguments over batting averages turn bloody. He also shows up in the Dark Tower series, The Eyes of the Dragon, and in Hearts of Atlantis, one of my favorites. In King's book on writing, uh, which is great, and we'll talk about a little bit more, it's a part memoir and part how-to guide. He admits that writer's block nearly killed the stand when he realized his characters were doomed to make the same mistakes that led to the last society's woes. It was uh, reprinted in 1990 as a complete and uncut edition. The stand itself in its initial phase was already very, very long, and Doubleday told King that they couldn't publish it, that it was too long. But it was eventually published when printing technology shifted, and that is considered his longest uh, standalone work at 1,152 pages. It's uh, been appreciated by literary critics and is considered one of his best novels. It's been included in lists of best books of all time by Rolling Stone, Time, Modern Library, Amazon, and the BBC. There's a self-titled miniseries that was broadcast in 1994 on ABC, and you can actually find that online, and I only looked at the beginning of it, but it does look to be really creepy. And apparently there's another miniseries in development. So now, during the pandemic, um, his tale of terror has become a hot item for sadistic readers. And so he himself posted a chapter online uh, for free, an audiobook sample in which he explains how the virus spreads. So again, extremely creepy. And if you're looking to freak yourself out even more or distract yourself from reality, you can give it a listen. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, there's actually a dog that shows up in the stand, and it's, his name is Kojak. And so while our good guy, Stu Redman, is on his way to Las Vegas to fight evil, uh, he gets hurt and the others leave him behind. And a good dog rescues him. Uh, here's an excerpt. The black shadow wagged its tail and came. Kojak? It was. And there was something in his mouth, something he dropped at Stu's feet. He sat down, tail thumping, waiting to be complimented. Good dog, Stu said in amazement. Good dog. Kojak had brought him a rabbit. Barking with joy, Kojak went again. In 20 minutes, he had brought back enough wood for a large fire. When the coals of the fire had burned down to embers, Kojak came over and slept next to him, giving Stu his heat. And that was how, on the first night after the party was broken, Stu ate while the others went hungry and slept easy while their sleep was broken. 
I was kind of confused. I was confusing Kojak with Cujo. And so it's a little bit, you know, uh, Stephen King does tend to recycle characters throughout his books. And so I was a little bit confused, like, was this some sort of predecessor for the evil dog? But no, Kojak is not Cujo. Cujo is this uh, rabid St. Bernard that figured in Stephen King's book uh, called Cujo. And it was a uh, 1981 horror novel. Stephen had trouble with another kind of dog. And uh, this is kind of a very tough story to to talk about. On June 14th in 1999, he was uh, out walking. Uh, Stephen has said himself that he walks four miles a day, every day. And so he was out walking, and a driver who was distracted by a dog that was loose in his car that was trying to get into a cooler, the driver was Brian Edwin Smith. So he got distracted by this dog in his car and was trying to mess with the dog to get it to leave the cooler alone. And so he wasn't looking at the road, and he floated over onto the shoulder and struck King who flew through the air and managed to kind of fall into a depression but avoid some rocks, which probably saved his life. Uh, Smith was later arrested and charged with driving to endanger an aggravated assault, and he pled guilty to a lesser charge of driving to endanger and was sentenced to six months in jail, which was suspended, and he had his driving license suspended for a year. And there's an interview on a fan site in which King said, there really isn't anything that he's got that I want except his license. Unfortunately, that's a paper that's very hard to get away from anybody in any state. Stephen was extremely injured. He had a collapsed right lung, multiple fractures of his right leg, scalp lacerations, and a broken hip. His leg bones were so shattered that the doctors thought initially they were going to have to amputate his leg, but ended up stabilizing the bones with an external fixator. After five operations in 10 days, King actually went back to work on the book on writing in July, although his hip was still shattered, and he could only sit for about 40 minutes uh, before he was in too much pain to keep writing. Stephen's lawyer and some other people bought Smith's van for $1,500, allegedly trying to keep it from appearing on eBay, and it was later crushed at a junkyard. According to Wikipedia, to Stephen's disappointment, as he had fantasized about smashing it, uh, which makes you wonder what he thought about what he uh, should do to Brian Smith. Brian Smith met his own very unhappy ending in September of 2000, so just a year and a half or so. Uh, He was discovered dead in his small trailer home in western Maine, even more ironically, on Stephen King's birthday. The cause of his death was listed as an accidental overdose of the painkiller fentanyl. He had had a back injury, so he might have been prescribed the painkiller, but I'm sure his life was very unhappy after he had uh, damaged such a public figure. And Stephen uh, stated publicly, I was very sorry to hear of the passing of Brian Smith. The death of a 43-year-old man can only be termed untimely. And a year later, he said that uh, he actually, besides the fact that um, Smith died on his birthday, he also shared King's middle name. Stephen did use 
Brian Smith in his books. He did depict him in the Dark Tower series as, uh, in somebody's words, critics' words, as a reckless stoner and a coward. And then in this terrible article, Six Famous Works of Art You Didn't Know Were Vicious Insults, uh, somebody lays into Stephen here by saying that he'd used that character uh, who has a Rottweiler named Bullet, which I think is actually true, uh, drives a blue minivan and is generally an all-around mouth breather. That's how he describes the character in the Dark Tower series. And the guy goes on, he's an irresponsible, mentally deficient drug addict, and his name is Brian Smith. And in the book, uh, he's looking to score some drugs when he hops in his van and then almost strikes a fictionalized king who is uh, saved by another hero. So I want to talk about the book on writing, which I think is a really excellent book. It's part biographical and really details his early beginnings as working as a teacher for hardly any money and his early life writing Carrie at the beginning and dreaming that it might bring in some money. And he was notified that it would be published by Telegraph because his phone was out of service. They were very poor at the beginning. And then when the paperback publishing rights were sold, he also describes that in his book, A Much Happier Moment. So he writes, On Sunday, I got another call from Bill Thompson at Doubleday. I was alone in the apartment. Tabby, his wife, had packed the kids off to her mother's for a visit, and I was working on the new book, which I thought of as Vampires in Our Town. Are you sitting down? Bill asked. No, I said. Our phone hung on the kitchen wall, and I was standing in the doorway between the kitchen and the living room. Do I need to? You might, he said. The paperback rights to carry went to Signet Books for $400,000. When I was a little kid, Daddy Guy had once said to my mother, Why don't you shut that kid up, Ruth? When Stephen opens his mouth, all his guts fall out. It was true then. Has been true all my life, but on that Mother's Day in May of 1973, I was completely speechless. I stood there in the doorway, casting the same shadow as always, but I couldn't talk. Bill asked if I was still there, kind of laughing as he said it. He knew I was. I hadn't heard him right, couldn't have. The idea allowed me to find my voice again at last. Did you say it went for $40,000? $400,000, he said. 200000 of it would be uh, Steve's. So congratulations, Steve. I was standing in the doorway, looking across the living room toward our bedroom and the crib where Joe slept. Our place on Sanford Street rented for $90 a month. And this man I'd only met once face-to-face -face was telling me I'd just won the lottery. The strength ran out of my legs. I didn't fall exactly, but I kind of whooshed down to a sitting position there in the doorway. I was really struck in the memoir biographical part of the book in uh, Stephen's openness and sharing about how he wrote and also his struggles with drugs, which are uh, very significant, just how forthright he is about his life. And I was really touched by it, you know, that he would go to this effort for future writers, but also for his fans, you know, to really let you see how the writing process works. And it's, uh, you know, been 20 years since that book came out, and he's still incredibly prolific and unbelievably popular. And he's so prolific, he's sometimes had to write under various pseudonyms. I honestly believe that there's a Stephen King out there for everyone. 
Uh, for me, it was Hearts in Atlantis, which is a collection of two novellas and three sto- short stories. It came out in 1999. All of the characters are kind of interweaved in all these uh, pieces, but it's uh, really about the baby boomer generation, especially Stephen's view that his generation, our generation, failed to live up to its promise and ideals. In fact, it opens with the Peter Fonda line from the end of Easy Rider, we blew it. All of the stories are about the 1960s, the war in Vietnam, and then some uh, college memories from uh, Stephen himself when he was uh, playing, spending too much time playing hearts when he was in college. In all the stories, their members of that generation fail or are paying the cost of some kind of failure. I also really liked Gunslinger. I do think that you should check Stephen King out, uh, even if you're not into horror. He's written so many different kinds of books, you're likely to find something you're interested in. And then there's the last uh, section of Unwriting, which again, I highly recommend if you have any interest in reading and writing. It's really, really practical advice and examples and exercises. To me, the most interesting was his comments about being the kind of writer that he is, you know, it's immensely popular and not writing so much for the literary critics. In fact, I thought that he had addressed this uh, quite frankly in the book, but actually what I found was he's, he actually was talking about Raymond Chandler and how Raymond Chandler had been kind of dismissed. So I'll read a little bit here. He's talking about how to become a good writer, how to become a competent writer. And he says that there's a whole group of kind of politically corrupt people from the local country club who often are the same men and women who tell their classes that writing ability is fixed and immutable. Once a hack, always a hack. Even if the writer rises in the estimation of an influential critic or two, he or she always carries his her early reputation along like a respectable married woman who was a wild child as a teenager. Some people never forget, that's all. And a good deal of literary criticism serves only to reinforce a caste system which is as old as the intellectual snobbery which nurtured it. Raymond Chandler may be recognized now as an important figure in 20th century American literature, an early voice describing the enemy of urban life in the years after World War II, but there are plenty of critics who will reject such a judgment out of hand. He's a hack, they cry indignantly, a hack with pretensions, the worst kind, the kind who thinks he can pass for one of us. Critics who try to rise above this intellectual hardening of the arteries usually meet with limited success. Their colleagues may accept Chandler into the company of the great, but are apt to seat him at the foot of the table. And there are always those whispers. Came out of the pulp tradition, you know. Carries himself well for one of those, doesn't he? Did you know he wrote for Black Mask in the 30s? Yes, regrettable. (laughs) Stephen getting a few digs in there. Oh, there's also another funny section here that I'll share with you because it gives you a sense of the kind of attitude Stephen has toward a lot of this kind of writing. And so he's writing here about going off to these kinds of, uh, you know, retreats or workshops where, you know, you're you're in your little cabin and lunch is delivered and everybody's going to toast marshmallows and all this kind of stuff. And, and he's talking about how bad these workshops often are in terms of criticism. 
also that, you know, you're really just supposed to be working. And here you get Stephen's sense of his just workaday attitude toward working. He says he turns out 2,000 words a day. Can you imagine that day after day? Anyway, so he says, you didn't come after all to wander lonely as a cloud, experiencing the beauty of the woods or the grandeur of the mountains. You're supposed to be working, damn it. If only so, your colleagues will have something to critique as they toast their goddamn marshmallows there in the main lodge. And then he talks about that he doesn't really mind interruptions, and it can be of any kind. You know, taking the kid to the basketball camp is uh, also important and can also help your work. And then he goes on, and what about those critiques, by the way? How valuable are they? Not very, in my experience, sorry. A lot of them are maddeningly vague. I have the feeling of Peter's story, someone may say. It had something, a sense of, I don't know. There's a loving kind of, you know, I can't exactly describe it. (laughs) He says, and instead of pelting these babbling idiots with their own freshly toasted marshmallows, everyone else sitting around the fire is often nodding and smiling and looking solemnly thoughtful. In too many cases, the teachers and writers in residence are nodding, smiling, and looking solemnly thoughtful right along with them. It seems to occur to few of the attendees that if you have a feeling you just can't describe, you might just be, I don't know, kind of like my sense of it is maybe in the wrong fucking class. And I'll close here with uh, his ending, which is about writing. Writing isn't about making money, getting famous, getting dates, getting laid, or making friends. In the end, it's about enriching the lives of those who will read your work, and enriching your own life as well. It's about getting up, getting well, and getting over. Getting happy, okay? Getting happy. Some of this book, perhaps too much, has been about how I learned to do it. Much of it has been about how you can do it better. The rest of it, and perhaps the best of it, is a permission slip. You can, you should, and if you're brave enough to start, you will. Writing is magic, as much the water of life as any other creative art. The water is free, so drink. All right, so there we have it, a conversation about The Stand and Stephen's book about writing. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.